President Lee concluded our last conference in April with the statement that in his 32 years as a general authority, he had learned that the most inspired preaching is always accompanied by beautiful, inspired music. I'm grateful this morning to be sustained by the beautiful renditions of the choir. Music, Addison said, is the only sensual gratification in which mankind may indulge himself to excess without injury to their moral or religious feelings. If that were true in his day, it is not in ours. Once music, once that innocent, now is often used for wicked purposes. It has been obvious for centuries that the lyrics of the worst kind can be set to music that is innocent of itself, words which are bad, set to music which is otherwise good, and lead men astray. Recently, the First Presidency restated this counsel. Music can be used to exalt and inspire or to carry messages of degradation and destruction. It is therefore important that, as Latter-day Saints, we at all times apply the principles of the gospel and seek the guidance of the Spirit in selecting the music with which we surround ourselves. In our day, music itself has been corrupted. Music can, by its tempo, by its beat, by its intensity, dull the spiritual sensitivity of men. Studies citing the physiological effects from some of the extreme music of today neglect the most serious thing concerning it. Our youth are brought up on a diet of music that is loud and fast, more intended to agitate than to pacify, more intended to excite than to calm. Even so, there is a breadth of it, some soft enough to be innocent and appealing to our youth, and that which is hard. And that is where the problem is. One of the signs of apostasy in the Christian churches in our day is the willingness of their ministers to compromise and to introduce in what had theretofore been their most sacred religious meetings the music of the drug and the rock culture. Such music has little virtue, and it is repellent to the Spirit of God. The pity is their foolishness has not accomplished the ends they sought. Their young people are not drawn to them as they hoped and expected. Rather, young people are inventing so-called churches of their own, groping and seeking for something that they find missing in their lives. Some have been critical when our leaders have exercised restraint in the kind of music that we will allow at church activities. Do you want to lose your youth? They ask, I would remind such that it is not the privilege of those called as leaders of the Church to slide the Church about as though it were on casters, hoping to put it into the path that men and youth already seem to be traveling. The Church is fixed and anchored, moored solidly to the truth, and our youth will be safe within it. President J. Reuben Clark said, We may not, under our duty, provide or tolerate an unwholesome amusement on the theory 
that if we do not provide it, our youth will go elsewhere to get it. We could hardly set up a roulette table in the church amusement hall for gambling purposes with the excuse that if we did not provide it, the youth would go to the gambling hall to gamble. We can never really hold our youth thus. Our task is to help the home plant better standards in the minds of the youth. And so we urge parents in the Church to show as much interest in the records and tapes their children purchase as they would the books and the magazines they bring into the home. There are many parents who would not for a moment tolerate a pornographic magazine in their homes, who unwittingly provide money for music, some of which, in its influence, can be quite as damaging. Someone said recently that no music could be degrading, that music in and of itself is harmless and innocent. If that be true, then there should be some explanation for circumstances where local leaders have provided a building, bright, expansive, inviting, and have assembled a party of young people dressed modestly and well-groomed and with manners to match, and then over-amplified sounds of hard music are introduced and an influence pours into the room that is repellent to the Spirit of God. The youth of the Church, by and large, have found a sensible and reasonable adjustment to the grooming and dress standards of our day. Our young men and women can dress with decency and modesty and yet not be look all that much different or odd. We've said a good deal through our youth organizations and through our Church schools about grooming and dress standards, and we've been successful. By comparison, we have not given sufficient counsel, I think, and attention to the music that our young people consume. And I think consume is the proper word. Now, there's much of today's music that they may well enjoy if they avoid the hard kind. Parents and Church leaders who counsel young people in this area soon learn that they must move very wisely. If a little child picks up a sharp object, sometimes a foolish adult will grab for it, frightened for the safety of the child. Instinctively, the child will grip it more tightly and perhaps be injured. The wise parent will trade him for it, something equally appealing but harmless, given in exchange so that he lets go willingly and without tears. Keep that in mind when you have a problem with your young people and their music. To change it may take some time and require inspiration. In the Church, we have great confidence in our youth, and particularly in the last year or two, we have moved to a program where their desires and wishes are more dominant in our activities. Now, this places great responsibility upon you, our young people. Pay careful attention to the music you program for your activities. Now, it's not that we have any lack of confidence in you. However, the breach between the world and the extremes of its music and the Church is wider in our day than ever in generations past, and the middle of the road runs through an entirely different valley than it did just a few years ago. Remember, young leaders, he is your Lord, and it is your Church quite as much as it is ours. 
I would recommend that you go through your record albums and set aside those records that promote the so-called new morality, the drug and the hard rock culture. Such music ought not to belong to young people who are concerned about spiritual development. Why not go through your collection? Get rid of the worst of it. Keep just the best of it. Be selective in what you consume and what you produce. It becomes part of you. If you are blessed with a musical talent, develop a wide range of good music. There is so much wonderful, uplifting music available that we can experience to our advantage. Our people ought to be surrounded with good music of all kinds, even some modern kinds, if it is soft and if it is inspiring. Parents ought to foster good music in the home and cultivate a desire to have their children learn the hymns of inspiration. Somehow the time for music lessons seems to come along when there are so many other expenses with, for families with little children. But somehow Olive and Andrew Kimball managed it, and Spencer learned to play. Somehow Samuel and Louisa Lee managed it, and Harold learned to play. Now, as the leaders of the Church assemble in the upper room of the temple for our sacred meetings, we always sing a hymn. At the organ, President Spencer W. Kimball or President Harold B. Lee. How wonderful is the music instructor who will teach children and youth to play and will acquaint them with good music in their formative years, including the music of worship. To have such music as part of one's life is a great blessing. The Lord has said, For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their heads. I think I would like to share with the young people something about how such music has been very important in my life, although I am not trained as a musician. Probably the greatest challenge to people of any age, particularly to young people, and the most difficult thing you will face in mortal life is to learn to control your thoughts. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. One who can control his thoughts has conquered himself. When I was about ten years old, we lived in a home surrounded by an orchard. There never seemed to be enough water for the trees. The ditches always fresh plowed in the spring, soon would be filled with weeds. One day, in charge of an irrigating turn, I found myself in trouble. As the water moved down the rows choked with weeds, it would flood in every direction. I raced back and forth through the puddles trying to build up the banks, and as soon as I had one place patched up, it would break in another. A neighbor came through the orchard, and he watched for a moment. Then, with a few quick strokes of the shovel, he cleared the ditch and allowed the water to course through the channel he'd made. If you want the water to stay in its course, you'll have to make a place for it to go, he said. I've come to know that thoughts like water will stay on course if we make a place for them to go. Otherwise, our thoughts follow the course of least resistance, always seeking a lower level. I have been told a uh, hundred times or more as I grew up that we ought, I ought to control my thoughts, but no one told me how. I want to tell you young people about one way you can learn to control your thoughts, and it has to do with music. 
The mind is like a stage, except when we are asleep, the curtain is always up. There's always some act being performed on the stage. It may be a comedy, a tragedy, interesting, dull, good or bad, but there is some act always playing on this stage of the mind. You've noticed, haven't you, that without any real intent on your part, in the middle of almost any performance, a shady little thought may creep in from the wings and attract your attention? These delinquent thoughts will try to upstage everybody. If you permit them to go on, all the thoughts of any virtue will leave because you have consented to it, and the influence of unrighteous thoughts will be with you. If you heed them, they will enact for you on the stage of your mind anything to the limits of your toleration. A theme of jealousy or hatred, it may be vulgar, immoral, even depraved. When they have the stage, if you let them, they will devise the most clever persuasions to hold your attention. They can make it interesting, all right, even convince you that it is innocent, for they are but thoughts. What do you do at a time like that, when the stage of your mind is commandeered by these imps of unclean thinking, whether they be the gray ones that seem almost clean or the filthy ones? which leave no room for doubt. If you can control your thoughts, you can overcome habits, even degrading personal habits. If you can learn to master them, you will have a happy life. Now this is what I would teach you. Choose from among the sacred music of the Church a favorite hymn, one with words that are uplifting and music that is reverent, one that makes you feel something akin to inspiration. And remember President Lee's counsel, perhaps, I am a child of God, would do. Go over it in your mind. Carefully memorize it. Even though you've had no musical training, you can think through a hymn. Now, use this hymn as the place for your thoughts to go. Make it your emergency channel. Whenever you find these shady actors have slipped from the sidelines of your thinking onto the stage of your mind, put on this record, as it were, as the music and the words form in your thoughts, the unworthy ones will slip shamefully away. It will change the whole mood on the stage of your mind because it is uplifting and clean. The baser thoughts will disappear. In due time, you will find yourself on occasion humming the music inwardly as you retrace your thoughts. You discover that some influence from the world about you encouraged an unworthy thought. It moved on the stage of your mind, and almost automatically the music began. Music, said Gladstone, is the most forceful instrument for governing the mind and the spirit of man. I am so grateful for music that is worthy and uplifting and inspiring. Once you learn to clear the stage of your mind from unworthy thoughts, keep it busy with learning worthwhile things. Change your environment so that you have things about you that will inspire good and uplifting thoughts. Keep busy with things that are righteous. Young people, 
You cannot afford to fill your minds with the unworthy hard music of our day. It is not harmless. It can welcome onto the stage of your mind unworthy thoughts and set a tempo to which they dance and to which you may act. You degrade yourself when you identify with all of those things which seem now to surround such extremes in music, the shabbiness, the irreverence, the immoralities, and the addictions. Such music as that is not worthy of you. You should have self-respect. You are a son or a daughter of Almighty God. He has inspired a world full of wonderful things to learn and to do, uplifting music of many kinds that you can enjoy. The choir, I think, was to sing in conclusion the pioneer hymn, Come, Come, Ye Saints. I have a brother who became a brigadier general in the Air Force during World War II. He was a bomber pilot and took part in some of the most dangerous and desperate raids in Europe. He returned to an assignment in Washington, D.C. about the time I finished pilot training in the same B-24 bombers and was heading for the Pacific. We had a day or two together in Washington, D.C. before I left for overseas, and we talked of courage and of fear. And I asked how he had held himself together in the face of all that he had endured. And he said, I had a favorite hymn, Come, Come, Ye Saints. And when I was desperate, when there was little hope that we would return, I kept that on my mind. And it was as though the engines of the aircraft would sing back to me, Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. From this he clung to faith, the one essential ingredient to courage. There are many references in Scripture, both ancient and modern, that attest to the influence of righteous music. The Lord himself was prepared for his greatest test through its influence, for the Scripture records and when they had sung an hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. I bear witness that God is our Father, that we are his children, that he loves us and has provided great and glorious things in this life. I know this, and I thank him for the uplifting influence of good music in my life and in the lives of my children. There are many things we can do together as a family. Inspired music we can feel together. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It is a great blessing to be here today. After briefing the office staff at our mission in Virginia, I turned to leave in our mission commissary, or uh, what do we call him now, transportation man and, and uh, secretary, said, uh, President, just tell President Lee we're behind him. Well, on behalf of all of the missionaries throughout the world who testify daily that Jesus is the Christ and of your prophetic calling, President Lee, we want you to know we're behind you. <clears throat> 
William Jennings Bryan wrote, The human measure of a human life is its income. The divine measure of a life is its outgo, its overflow, its contribution to the welfare of all. In our search for happiness, we may get so involved with the human measure of life that we fail to recognize the temporary value of such riches. Christ warned that we can become spiritually choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. The Savior also said, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It is then our blessing and responsibility to become rich toward God. We are to go beyond acquiring something for ourselves. The Savior also taught us how to do this when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might, and reap while the day lasts, that he may, lay, may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. This means we may gain eternal life, and behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. The significance of this truth was brought to the heart of a certain man when his friend approached him with a plan to obtain the riches of this life. And he wrote, Dear friend, during one of our conversations you said something which has been on my mind ever since. In fact, you might say that it has really troubled me and has caused me to do some real soul-searching. In explaining why you felt compelled to make this sales plan known to me, you said, I would feel real bad a few years from now if I knew about this got rich from it, and did not tell my friends about it. You will never know how that statement has troubled me, because I have made no attempt to share something more precious than money with you. I am speaking of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hold on a minute. I know what's going through your mind. This kook has lost his cool and gone off the deep end. Well, it ain't so. I believe we spent enough time together this past couple of years for you to know that I haven't turned into a freak or something, but I am sure you have noticed a change. 
I no longer do many of the earthly things you probably remember of me. I have a great love for my family and mankind in general. I am truly sorry for the many things in my past and will do my best to never do them again. But this isn't the most important thing. The most important thing in all the world is that I know that I existed in the pre-existence as a spirit child of Heavenly Father, that I am here in mortality as part of His great plan for me in order that I may prove my worthiness to Him by constantly making the proper choices between good and evil, and that if I prove myself worthy, I will return to His presence. I further know that there is a prophet, Harold B. Lee, here upon the earth today, who communicates regularly with the true and living Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Through this prophet, I can learn everything necessary to help me live my life and guide my family in the proper manner to return to His presence. Oh, there is so much more that I could tell. But suffice it to say that there is absolutely no unanswered question in my mind concerning my reason for being here at this time, nor what reward I will earn if I obey the teachings of my Father in heaven. Of course, I have learned all of these things through study and prayer and the teachings of the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is this that I have never shared with you that has troubled my conscience so. Now I am going to do something about it. At the time this letter is written, I mailed and am sending your name to the Church representatives in your area and am asking them to contact you. They will undoubtedly send a couple of young men or lady missionaries to see you. These will be people who are dedicating a couple of years of their lives at their, their or their family's expense to tell people like yourselves of this gospel. They have about six one-hour lessons they will want to teach you. I beg of you to listen to their message. I testify to you that it is true. I also testify that this is the true Church, that Harold B. Lee is a prophet of the true and living God, and that this gospel of Jesus Christ is more precious than money. A recent Relief Society film, Walk in the Light, highlights the incident of a young granddaughter who desired to become the heir to her grandmother's watch. It seemed to the grandchild a real treasure. Here are the soul-stirring words of her grandmother's reply. The watch is of small value, but I want to leave you something very precious. It is something I brought with me all the way from Scotland. I carried it with me across the plains. It is something that will be of value to you all the days of your life and into the eternities. I want to leave to you my testimony. 
my testimony of the gospel. I know that the gospel is true. I know that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. It is said that many grandchildren honor the name of that grandmother and recall her testimony with joy. How great are the riches she has laid up in store in our Heavenly Father's kingdom. I am grateful to the Lord for you members of the Church who desire to share the wealth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with your family and friends. Not only are you becoming rich toward God, but you are making other lives rich also. You are giving them the true Christian religion. Patrick Henry, a great American patriot, said, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is the true Christian religion. If they had that, and I had not given them one shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not that, and I had given them the whole world, they would be poor. May we all share our wealth of testimony with others that we and they may become rich toward God. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Three weeks ago, this very afternoon, I stood in the peace and the quiet of the American War Memorial Cemetery of the Philippines in Manila. There was a spirit of reverence in the warm tropical air that day. Situated among the carefully cut grass were acres and acres of white markers which contained the names of men, mostly young, who in battle in World War II had given their lives. I let my eyes pass name by name along the colonnades of honor, and as I did so, tears came easily and without embarrassment. And as my eyes filled with tears, my heart swelled with pride, and I continued to gain amazement at the high price of liberty and the costly sacrifice which some had been called upon to bear. And then my thinking turned from those who so bravely served and gallantly died, and I seemed to picture in my mind a grief-stricken mother, the mother of each one, standing with that fateful telegram in her hand which told her of a precious son's supreme sacrifice. I pondered the thought, who can measure mother's grief? Who can probe mother's love? Who can contemplate in its entirety the lofty role of mother? With perfect trust in God, she places her hand in his and then walks down into the valley of the shadow of death that you and I might come forth to a newness of life. This is the bravery of our mothers. The poet said, The holiest words my tongue can frame, The noblest thoughts my soul can claim, Unworthy are to praise her name, More precious 
than all others. An infant when her love first came, a man I find it still the same. Reverently, I breathe her name, the blessed name of Mother. In this sacred setting today, I should like to consider for a moment with you, Mother. Actually, I'd like to speak of four mothers. First, Mother Forgotten. Second, Mother Remembered. Third, Mother Blessed. And finally, Mother Loved. Mother Forgotten is everywhere to be found. My, the nursing homes are crowded and the hospital beds are filled. The days come, then go, and often the weeks and the months pass, and Mother is not visited. Can we appreciate the loneliness of her heart as hour by hour, alone in her age, she gazes out the window for the loved one that does not visit, the letter which the postman does not bring. She listens for the knock that does not sound, the phone that does not ring, the voice she does not hear. Imagine her frustration when just across the way she sees another mother welcome the glad hello of a son, the warm embrace of a daughter, or the cheery exclamation of a child, hello, grandmother. There are other ways that we forget, Mother. Whenever we fall, whenever we do less than we ought, in a very real way, we forget, Mother. Last Christmas, I stood in the entranceway of a nursing home in Salt Lake City. Alongside of me was the proprietress. She opened the door to a living room where a group of elderly mothers were seated. And then she said, Look at Mrs. Hansen. Her daughter visits her every Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. You can set your watch by it. And look at Sister Peck. Every Wednesday morning, the postman brings to her a letter from her son in New York. She reads it, then rereads it, then folds it away like a piece of treasure. But look at Sister Carol. Her family never visits, never phones, never writes. Apologetically, she speaks words which are heard but somehow do not convince. She says they're all too busy to come. To which I say, shame on any person who makes of a noble woman a mother forgotten. Hearken unto thy father who begat thee, wrote Solomon, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Can we not make of every mother forgotten a mother remembered? Men yield to their better natures and they turn from evil when mother is remembered. I like the account told by Colonel Higginson, a famous office officer in the Civil War. He was asked on one occasion to recount the incident of the war which he felt held the record for bravery. To the astonishment of his listeners, he did not describe a battle on the battlefield. He told of one of his young officers who was a noble and a brave person, a young man who was honorable, pure in his thinking, free from the dissipations which other men indulged in. One night after a party where a number of the officers had become inebriated, one of them stood up and in jest said to the other officer, You haven't been drinking tonight. Why don't you propose a toast? The young officer stood with every eye upon him. 
Though he were pale, he nevertheless had self-assurance, and he said, Gentlemen, I shall propose a toast, which you may drink as you choose, but which I shall drink in water. Gentlemen, I give you our mothers. Instantly a strange spirit seemed to come over the tipsy men. They drank the toast in silence. The laughter ceased, the music stopped, one by one each left the room. You see, the lamp of memory had begun to burn, and the name of mother had touched each person's heart. I remember as a boy, I looked forward to attending Sunday school on Mother's Day. Ours was the task to hand to each mother a small potted plant and then to sit back in silent reverie as a member of our ward, Melvin Watson, a man who was blind, would find his way to the piano and then would touch all of us with that beautiful song, that wonderful mother of mine. That was the first time I'd ever seen a blind man cry, and I think I can still picture in memory those tears as they would come from beneath his closed eyelids and form little rivulets and trickle down his cheek, falling at last on the lapel of a suit that he had never seen. In boyhood puzzlement, I wondered why every man was so quiet, why so many white handkerchiefs came from so many pockets. And then I realized that every boy and every girl, every man and every woman had made a silent pledge I will remember that wonderful mother of mine. I think, too, of a man, a friend of mine, who in middle age lost his beloved widowed mother. She went home to a well-earned reward. He and his brothers and sisters assembled at the family home, sat around the large dining room table, and on the center of the table they placed mother's little treasure box where she kept those things were of, which were of greatest worth to her. One by one, each treasure came forth. The first was the marriage certificate, Salt Lake Temple. Oh, now mother and dad could be together again. The second treasure to come forth was the deed to the home, the home where each boy and girl in turn had entered the stage called mortality. The appraised value of that home had little resemblance to the worth mother attached to it. And then there was taken a final treasure from the box, a little white envelope becoming yellow with age. Carefully, the oldest son opened the flap and took forth from that envelope a small valentine, homemade, containing the childlike pencil marks of the man who held it in his hand. The message was simple, I love you, Mother. By what Mother had held sacred, she taught yet another lesson to her children. Each one made a pledge not only to remember Mother, but to honor her. For them it was not a case of too little and too late, as in the classic poem by Rose Marinoni entitled At Sunrise. They pushed him straight against the wall. The firing squad dropped in a row. And why he stood on tiptoes, those men shall never know. He wore a smile across his face as he stood primly there. 
the gun straight aiming at his heart, the sun upon his hair. For he remembered in a flash those days beyond recall when his proud mother took his height against the bedroom wall. Mother had been remembered. Now may we consider mother blessed. I turn to the Holy Scripture for what is to me one of the most moving and beautiful accounts of our Savior's compassion when he saw the grief of a mother, even the widow at Nain. The Holy Record records that it came to pass that the Lord came unto a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. And when he came nigh unto the city, behold, a dead man was carried out, he being the only son of his widowed mother, and she was in the city with much people. When the Master saw her, he had compassion for her, and said unto her, Weep not. And then he stepped to the bier, and he touched it, and they that bare him stood still. And the Master spoke, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and spoke, and Jesus delivered him to his mother. What power, what compassion, what love did the Savior thus demonstrate? Oh, if we would only realize that we have the same power and the same capacity, needed our eyes to see the pitiable plight and ears to hear the silent longings of a troubled heart, yes, and a soul filled with compassion, so that we could communicate not only eye to eye or mouth to ear, but in the majestic style of the Lord, even heart to heart and then all mothers everywhere would be mothers blessed. Finally, mothers loved. I turned to primary, and a little poem I learned years ago, I hope I can recall it, the message is touching to me, entitled, Which Loved Best? I love you, mother, said little John, then forgetting his work as Cap went on. And he was off to the garden swing, leaving mother the wood and the water to bring. I love you, mother, said Rosie Nell. I love you more than words can tell. So she teased and she pouted half the day, till mother rejoiced when she went to play. I love you, mother, said little Fan. Today I'll help you all I can. How glad I am that school doesn't keep. So she rocked the baby till it fell asleep. Then, stepping softly, she fetched the broom, swept the floor, tidied the room. Busy and happy all day was she, busy and happy as a child could be. I love you, mother, again they said, three little children going to bed. Now, how do you think that mother guessed which of them really loved her best? We can demonstrate our love for mother if we incorporate into our lives the truths which she taught. This concept is not new to our generation. I think of Helaman, for example, in the Book of Mormon, that noble leader who stood at the forefront of 2,000 young men whom he described as having more bravery and courage than any men he had ever known. 
They said unto him, The Lord God is with us, and he shall not suffer that we should fall. Therefore let us go forth. And though they never before had fought, yet they did not fear God, nor did they fear death. Why? Because they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, the Lord their God would deliver them. And they recounted unto Helaman these words, We do not doubt, our mothers knew it. And after the carnage and the battle was over, Helaman said to his great joy, he observed that not one soul of them had fallen to the earth. Yea, they had fought with the power of God, even miraculous strength and mighty power. I like those phrases, miraculous strength, mighty power, love of mother and mother's love had met and triumphed. There are many other accounts in the Holy Scripture, but there is one that stands out above and beyond any other, the place, Jerusalem, the period, the meridian of time. On hand is a band of Roman soldiers. Their helmets bear the insignia of Caesar. Their shields, likewise, show that emblem, and their spears are capped by Roman eagles. There are a few natives to Jerusalem there, faded into the still of the night and gone forever, are the rowdy cries, Crucify him, crucify him. The hour has come. The earthly ministry of the Son of God draws rapidly to its dramatic close. It's lonely on Golgotha's hill, noticeably absent are the lame beggars who because of this man now walk, the blind who because of this man now see, the deaf who because of this man now hear, even the dead who because of this man now walk and live. From that tortured position on the cruel cross, Jesus looked down and beheld a woman, his mother. Then he beheld his beloved disciple. And he said to his mother, Behold thy son. And then to the beloved disciple, Behold thy mother. From that time when the world did shake and the mountains came down, all through the generations of time, there echoes and re-echoes within our ears that gentle command, Behold thy mother when we respond willingly to that invitation, I testify that gone forever will be the legions of mothers forgotten, and mothers everywhere will be mothers remembered, and mothers blessed, and mothers loved, and our Heavenly Father will look down from His dwelling place and see the handiwork of His own hands and be led to say, as He said in the beginning, It is very good. May we treasure this one truth. We cannot forget Mother and remember God. We cannot remember Mother and forget God. Why? Because these two sacred persons, God and Mother, partners in creation, in love, in service, in compassion, are as one. 
I pray today, earnestly, yet humbly, that we will honor God and honor Mother, for this is the work of the Lord, and I testify that he is the Savior of all mankind. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.